Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast and part two of the Greg Lemond special. If you haven't listened to part one yet, make sure you tune in. If not, enjoy part two now. As you say, there was a point kind of thing where people started sort of coming more to you um, in in actual pro sport that's when a rider starts winning and starts commanding big bucks then those things those srm power meters that didn't exist once upon a time uh debut on bikes such as yours um but there was obviously a time before that because you came to france in well you joined the most french of teams renault in 1981 yeah, and at that point um hino had won two or three tours to france so he was a big hitter and you've gone to this incredible, you know, from cleaning up on the local circuit, I guess, in the, in the States and domestically in California to racing on a drafty continent with uh, surly Frenchmen <laughs> and their yeah, star That was a great man. team, though. Yeah. It, it was a good so, team. So how, how, did, how did that um, feel to uh, 19-year-old you? And, and, you know, how, what on earth do you think you'd say to yourself if you could meet yourself now and be like, wow, that's, that's where I got to? Because what were you thinking well, when you when you landed on that doorstep? Well, it, I, I have to say my first four years of racing were probably the, my favorite. Um, oh, really? Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because imagine I'm a 14-year-old kid. i not doing any competitive sports. My parents, I'm mean, honest, my dad, my mom and dad, born in Los Angeles, Long Beach. Uh, my dad is actually born in Jamaica, New York, but they family moved out to Long Beach. Uh, Live Lakewood and Long Beach. Lakewood was in world post World War II was these new multi, literally mass produced houses, mm. but it was the growing city. And my mom and dad were. I mean, honestly, it was like the movie Grease. And if you see my mom, she she was gorgeous. My dad looked like John Travolta, <laughs> but they were the popular kids. But he was. They didn't grow up with this family that, you know, the next step is university. I mean, my dad at eighteen wanted to marry my mom and. Uh, he told his parents and I remember he told me like the one of his math history teachers like come on Bob you're a decent student why don't you go to university now I'm going to marry mom my my, my his future wife uh my mom and he left school and he started a company mowing lawns literally for six years he was a gardener mm. and, and I remember going to houses with them I mean, that's why I could, I'm really good at cutting and mowing the lawn, very organized. <laughs> but then my dad got into real estate and he moved to Lake Tahoe. And that was the change for me. And instead of being in LA, we moved to Lake Tahoe. And moving from a city to Lake Tahoe when I was eight years old was unbelievable, magical. I mean, we moved up there during Christmas and I think we had eight feet of snow in our front of our house. That changed my life because I became an outdoor person. I learned to ski there. I got into fly fishing, trout fishing. That's who I was. And then freestyle skiing started at that time. That was the, you know, Wayne Wong, Susie Chaffee. And that was like the today's mountain biker snowboarding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that inspired me. But what's interesting, my sister, the only sports my mom, my mom loved the Olympics and, you know, 72. And I, that was the only time I saw a bike race for the first time. Right. Munich, Munich uh, uh, Olympics, my mom watched every sport and I saw the pursuit, the team pursuit. And I'm like, how boring is that? <laughs> <laughs> so that's I really remember that I'm like but uh but my sister got inspired by Olga Corbett at that time and she got into gymnastics in Lake Tahoe she ended up being really a world-class gymnast she was national champion AAU national champion she was on the national team she actually toured um she did demonstration Russia for the before the 76 Olympics for the wow. you know the 
the flag type of, it was a new, new discipline. It's kind of a big, big, I don't know, not a flag, but it's, um, I don't know what they call it. It's, it's a textile, they dance with it. Anyways, and she was on a legal South African trip to compete in South Africa by the US. Uh, so she was, and we were kind of competitive mm. and her dream was the Olympics. And the, it's 75, my parents for my birthday bought me a, a week long ski trip to Whistler Mountain to learn to do aerobatics flips at the Wang Wong Ski School. Wow. And so I, as we're leaving our house, my dad still lives in the same place, Franktown Road, Washa Valley, and a bunch of cyclists go whizzing by. Peloton after, you know, groups of riders kept going by and really colorful and kind of mm. like, well, why are we, why are we, can't we just leave? I'm going to San Francisco to get this flight up. And anyways, as we're leaving the valley, I said, well, maybe I'll take that up to go to the Olympics, kind of tell my sister, maybe I'll take that up. That was the last thing I remember. But anyways, I went up there and the Wayne Wong and the coaches said, you know, the best thing to do is ride your bike for getting in shape was, was, was for skiing. Yeah. But so I came from that non-competitive, I did compete in a couple of mogul matches, but it wasn't like racing. So I go from that and then there's no snow in the winter of 75, 76. And I meet a guy named Cliff Young at a bike show in Reno, uh, asked me if I ever thought of racing. I'm like, no. And he invited me to a club race two weeks later and Okay. And two weeks later, I did a club race and my running shoes tank top and heavy Raleigh. And I got second place out of 40. And now there was a national champion that master's national champion veterans at the time, really good racers at that time. And mm. so they told my dad, get him a real racing bike, get him into racing. Two weeks later, I won my first bike race. <laughs> and then I won my first 11 bike races. And that's, um, I do think there's interesting for me. And, and I, this kind of goes into performance enhancing stuff this is kind of go back but when I won those first 11 races um it was too easy and I asked permission uh from the first time in cycling in the U.S. um if I could race in the junior category and how old are you, how old are you at this point 14 I'd been right. racing two months uh but I won so I mean I, I was born to race bikes I mean I tactically was good and but we were using an 84 15 gear versus a 53 15 and so I never won another race that day, but I came in second, um, Nevada city. And my most memorable ride that year, the first year was, uh, Mount Tamalpais, which is a almost a thousand meter climb in the Bay area. Mm. And George mountain had just gotten sixth place in the Olympics and I'm 14, just now 15. And, um, he and I broke away and, and I would have won the race had I had a gear, <laughs> a little bit bigger <laughs> gear, but that was a big breakthrough for me. That was, you know, six months of racing. I was competing with a guy that was, you know, at the Olympic sixth place, he was really good pro. I'm saying this because the next year I, I won almost every junior race I got into that year. And then again, I asked permission to race with another, the older age group, because it really wasn't about winning for me. It was about challenging myself. And I'm, I'm saying that because for me, it wouldn't be winning wasn't the priority. The winning was the is the goal as long as I do it myself. <laughs> it's hard for other people to understand this because I, for me, it was I loved winning. It was so exciting. Honestly, I made I can tell you I made a lot of money as <laughs> as a racer. I mean, it, I think I made fifteen thousand dollars when in seventy seven. When I turned in nineteen eighty, I made thirty thousand dollars in money sponsorship. I turned pro for twelve thousand. <laughs> what I did dream about, and I my. You know, he you know became a hero. Same with Eddie Merckx, mainly because I, I, you know, the photos of them 
drew me to the sport. And then I, I realized that maybe I have a lot of talent. Maybe I have a chance to go there, even though most Americans said you can never do it. Mm. But one of my very good friends, Kent Gordis, who started racing with me, um, his dad lived in Geneva, Switzerland, 78, after the Junior World Championships, where we got a bronze medal in the team time trial. Um, he arranged for me to race for two months uh, in Europe. And I flew over, and we had two races in Switzerland, two races in France. Then we did six or seven races, maybe eight races in Belgium. And then Eddie B, who just passed away, sadly, uh, was a Polish national. He was Polish, but he defected from the Polish national team. He became the national coach for the juniors in the U.S. And he had arranged for me to do a three-day stage race in Poland mm. in 1978. So when I got to France, I won both races in Switzerland, both races in France. I think I won six out of the eight races in Belgium. <laughs> and then when I went to Belgium, Poland by myself, nobody showed up. I had to hitch a ride <laughs> and 50, 80 miles away uh, at 80 bucks in my pocket. But we somehow found the the house that was supposed to pick me up. Eddie forgot to call him and tell him I was coming. But anyways, and I ended up getting third place after a crash and winning stage. But I came back from that trip saying, well, Eddie Merckx, Kino, all these other riders have to put on their pants just like me, one mm. leg at a time. And it was at that point after that I wrote a goal. And, and I think goals really did make a difference. Goal setting really made a difference in, in my career. But I had, um, my dream was to kind of emulate or, duplicate or whatever you call it, you know, in Merckx's um, career, but giving myself a little room because I'm American, I need some learning uh, space. But my goal was to win the Junior World Championships in 79, Olympics 80, World Championships 80, by, when I was 22 and Tour de France by, his time, by, by the time I was 25, which I got all those except the Olympics. Um, <laughs> but so I was, you know, in my mind, I was um, preparing myself to go to Europe. Now, I didn't know when that would be. I, I remember um, flying to Amsterdam or Brussels with a guy named Mike Fatka, who sponsored me for my bike, Raleigh. Um, uh, I was racing Raleigh in 79. I just won the Junior World Championships. Um, and I went to the Six Days of Rotterdam, I think it was in early January. And I went to the Maastricht team uh, presentation for Panasonic. And, you know, he... Mike Facker was really good friends with Gary Knetman and he got a meeting with me and Peter Post to see if we could, I would turn pro either that next year, 80 or 81. And uh, he looked at me, I'm a little kid. I don't blame him. He said, Hey, he gave me his card. Call me, call me in five years when you're ready to race. <laughs> so, so anyways, I was still, my ambition was to turn pro as quick as I can. And in 80, I was racing Circuit de la Sarth. I won that at 18 years old. And then a, a next race, I was um, in a breaker with these Russians, five minutes up and had a flat. But there alongside me was Guimard, Cyril Guimard, who I kind of knew, didn't know. But after that race, he proposed, uh, he offered me a contract. Now that was, I was in heaven. You know, when the Olympics were boycotted, I didn't give a darn. <laughs> so that was... That was a big deal for me. And I have to say, I was so in awe of Hino, uh, at the same in respect, but uh, he and Hino, Guimard and Hino flew over to Reno, Nevada in, in, in November, 1980. Um, Guimard brought me a cyclocross bike, put positioned me on the bike and I went cyclocross riding and running with Hino. And, uh, and I turned pro, you know, January of 1981. So the transition for me with Guimard was truly, he, to me, by far the best uh, director sport I've had in my career. Um, mm. 
it was good. I mean, it was still painful because I didn't know any French, but it was, I, I'd cringe if I had ever turned pro for another pro team. It, he really made a difference in, in my career because he came to understand that I couldn't stay in Europe all year. He let me go back in April after the classics. So I was fortunate. I was really, really, all the things clicked in my career. So that's, that's Cyril Guimard, who was a professional himself and of some repute and had the nickname Napoleon. Why was that? Did you see a Napoleon? I don't in know him? that. Oh, because <laughs> no, I think, yeah, it's funny. People get nicknames. Maybe because he was not a Napoleon. When I hear Napoleon, it means he's, he's you know, he's short and he's making up for how small he is. Maybe I think <laughs> Guimard was in, in 71. He took the yellow jersey, then the green jersey. And he's a, pretty much a sprinter. You know, mm. he's a fighter. Really good tactics. And I think that's more like he's, you know, I think he know what one most of his races. I'm going to say this because Kimar tactically he was brilliant, and yeah. uh, you know if you see, you know with Coakley, he made a lot of big mistakes tactically, and Guimard was his driving force. Mm. And Guimard strategically, I mean, if you think of what Guimard, he was able to see talent and also develop that talent. It was Finyan, myself, Charlie Mote, he know, um, he produced some incredible riders, and. Uh, so that's Guimard is also one of the one of the really important things as a director of sport team is you're almost a psychologist too. And I'd have never worked well with somebody who just told me this is what you do, this is what you have to do. I'm a rebellious person. I would say screw, screw you. Mm-hmm. And Guimard was able to bring the very best out of uh, out of riders, even when they're racing poorly. In '84, I I had gotten a cold, then it turned to bronchitis. Um, I was in antibiotics. I mean, I should have probably quit the Pyrenees. I mean, I was dying. And mm. it actually shocked me because I never had that hard of a race in my career. Now I, I thought maybe it was just the Tour de France. You know, when I look back, obviously I was sick, but one day I was ready to go quit. And he just, he kept the riders with me all the way. It's the first stage of the Pyrenees. And, uh, and I stayed in, I got third place. I mean, you know, so the way he talked to me was very supportive. It was, you know, that was his strength. And, uh, it was by far my the best director sporting. I think he's one of the best in, in the history of, of cycling. He he's st- he's still going now. He's um he's still isn't he still involved in the French national team in some? I think in some capacity. I, I think he's my maybe running for like the presidency mm. of uh, the French Cycling Federation. I I've been following a few stories of him on Facebook, but not certain. Well, I mean another another rider that we've had on recently is Sean Kelly, who also speaks incredibly highly of Cyril Guimard and, and the effects that he had on his career as well at a very similar time to you um, and how he in, in very much like yourself he helped somebody who was not from the traditional stock which was Belgium, France, Italy, Spain and and made them feel comfortable in a, in a sport but you know Kelly being from a, a farm in Ireland yourself being from the west coast of America bringing you over and I guess did he made you feel welcomed and comfortable and like you belonged and which, you know, transpe- transpired into you being a Grand Tour winner in not a uh, not very long time. Good management could kill kill the morale and, and proper management can build that and bring the best out of people. And and I know I've seen some really, you know, directors I would have never wanted to race with. It's funny because it would probably be uh, De Gribaldi that uh, he, uh, Kelly raced because he was, there was some, I was, I think I joked with Sean because there was some, old traditional stuff that, you know, don't drink that much in a race, one or two bottles. And I'm going, okay, that's good, Sean. Stay that way in the tour when it's like 
super hot out. I always think of I Sean won Sean won the tour of Spain. I always thought he could win a big tour, and I kind of go, well, maybe if he just drank more <laughs> and didn't listen to Gribaldi at the time, because he was honestly that's what Kelly to me was. To me, there's three people: Hino, let's say Hino, Fignon, and and Kelly. For me, is the '80s the, the really the best performing athletes, and Kelly was just amazing rider and uh you know i always wish i had for some reason i didn't like the punch in, in the spring classics like he did but mm-hmm. but in the, later in the season we we had some close races but when when i think about how dominant he was and but tactically smart but super strong um and he was modest <laughs> some riders got they win one race and they became you know their egos would be you know, the heads would swell up four times the size, at least they, at least in their mind. I mean, infamously, you, you were teammates with, with a certain uh, certain rider who were, had an ego, so to speak, in Bernard Hino. Well, Hino, I don't know. It's funny because Finion had the bigger ego. Hino was just Hino. That was like, he's almost like a grouchy old man in a way. And I would say he didn't think too much. That's why I said Guimard was a much more tactic. I was a tactical rider. Guimard, Hino would would race if you told him attack into the headwind, 100 Ks to go because he thought you could win, he'd do it. Mm-hmm. I, I remember, I think I either won, maybe I won Dauphiné, I can't remember, one or third place, but I had I had just was spending a week in the hospital with a concussion, my only concussion, my racing. I was wearing a helmet too, but I came in there and I just got dropped the first couple of days, but I was in third place position. No, I think I, I why can't I remember if I won the race? <laughs> 83 or 84, I can't remember. Um, anyways, and he attacked right at the first part of the stage of Grenoble, built a 10-minute lead. That's great by himself, but doesn't take too much of a genius to figure out a Peloton's a lot more energy savings. Um, we ended up catching him. He lost 10 minutes, and I and and he would have won that race. He just you know played tactically a little smarter. So, um, but Kihino was actually truly. I mean, we've had a uh, run-ins in 86 it was truly happy that manipulated him if Guimard would have been there it would have been a different deal mm. and I look at the people around him and it's kind of weird because you think of Hino strong person he was the kind of type that guy that if you told him he was the strongest person in the world he'd believe it and that's how he'd race even though he yeah. might not be and so if and Tappy was able to go you know screw this American you know you won five take the six and uh, and that's why I had a hard time with him because he was very respectful of other riders. He shared his uh, his um, prize money, but we were the first team to truly race um, whoever was the very best rider that day. He knows worked for me in races. I've worked for him. Mm-hmm. I've worked for Finian. Finian's worked for me. And so going into 85, 86, that was still the relationship I had with him. I didn't realize there was going to be such um, – I'd say deception, but I don't think it, I, I think with a different director, he know would not have done that. You got a glimpse, even in that 86 tour, when the tensions were at their highest and, and even in, you get a glimpse on the Alpe d'Huez stage when you both rode up together of that, he know of the, the respectful guy, rather than uh, trying to attack you, you ride together and you cross the line together, arm in arm. Right. At the beginning, the bottom of Tappy's going, Greg, you've got the tour, let he know win. And, Crossed the line, and I am certain that the moment we crossed the finish line, Tappy said, "Screw that! 
you're going to go for the win because of the interview just slightly, you know, hour, two hours later, Tappy, he knows going, no, the race isn't over till the next time trial. I, I, I wish you'd have told me at the bottom of lap to us, but um, <laughs> it, it was very tense. It really, I wish I would have just known who we, how we were going to race because um, that'd have been fine. I take three riders. He takes the rest and mano, mano, I just don't want <laughs> So, <laughs> but did- I say Finyon wasn't really, I, I like Finyon too, but Finyon, when he would win the tour in 84, man, he became very arrogant. And then when he mm-hmm. wasn't racing well, he became normal. And that's was always hard to um, kind of, you know, you know, became bitter in a way. I think we're in 80, 89, we're, you know, he's ripping me apart because I didn't lead the race up for him because I'm in yellow jersey and I'm going, um, I mean, I, mean I, I, this is a story that I don't tell that often, but at the time holding onto a motorcycle or car would be automatic expulsion. And on the, um, I think it was the Tourmalet, he was getting dropped, maybe the climb after that. And I saw him hold onto a motorcycle. That should have been automatically disqualification. So that after that stage, super bad years, uh, he took 10 seconds and he ripped me apart for not riding like the leader of the yellow jersey. And, and that was my second day in the mountain stage in 86. So <laughs> I'm not about to waste energy. And I just told him the next day, you better shut your mouth up. Um, if you want me to go out and say what I saw you do yesterday, that's that only that's the way he, he was quiet until uh, the end of the tour. But otherwise, he had gone on and on and on. That's interesting with he, uh, with with Finion that he's the he was more of the egotistical sort of actor in that. Well, I, I got to learn a little bit more talking to him later in his career, and I think what I didn't know is he's incredibly shy, and sometimes shy people become it looks like they're arrogant. They just don't like to be in the limelight, so they're shy. And then I think after 83, 84, um, he won the tour. And in a way, he got ripped apart for being a tour winner, not winning it again. And he built this animosity towards journalists. He kind of kept score who wrote a bad article, you know, and that's what came out in 89. Like now, all of a sudden, he's back and screw you. You wrote a bad article. I'm not going to talk to you. Man, you can't believe the bad articles that read about wrote about me <laughs> after after eighty six. They all um, eighty six, and you know, shouldn't have been hunting, shouldn't have been doing this, doing that, and laughing. I mean, I was dropping every race, but I was so happy to be back racing. I can't. I I don't keep score like that, but um, like I was happy. He was angry, and, and I, I found he he did race against that a little bit. He used that kind of as a motivator, but he was actually a, a, a shy guy, good guy too. I'm just saying that there was he, his, his ego and his, <laughs> the way he uh, acted would dramatically change if he was riding well or not. So, but you know, he was a great competitor, really good competitor. Did you ever sit down after, so, you know, 1989 almost doesn't need an explanation, but just in case anyone hasn't heard uh, when Greg LeMond famously won it on the last day in a time trial, um, taking 50 seconds um, back and then some, another eight um, from Fignon, who looked in a prime position. Did, and the pictures of Fignon, that's that's real, that's some serious sporting disappointment. It goes down in the annals of, you know, that's disastrous to him and was to him. Famously, they say, or he even sort of said, I never really recovered. Did you, yeah, talk, I, I, did you I've have a beer some... with him after that? Oh, yeah. We, what, did you, we... what did you say about it? How was he? Well, one thing was awkward because we got together when he retired and I retired and we went down and 
raced some trips, drove some Formula Ones, played golf. Um, you know, it was kind of a little awkward, but we, you know, we were teammates prior, you know, 82 mm. to 84. And um, we didn't really talk a whole lot there, but the, but, but the hard part was when we'd be standing there and, and you'd see a Frenchman come up and he'd recognize me and then Finion, and they'd be, Greg, 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 you know, congratulate eight seconds. What a great victory. And then they'd look at Finion, how could you lose the tour by eight seconds? <laughs> That's me, both of us standing in one place. So that became very hard. Mm. Uh, I did like in 2008, we, I came to the tour and we did a couple of days of riding. Um, I can't remember what we talked about at that point, but I remember in 2009, I came back and we were on a TV show and it's real interesting. Finion, I, I heard a story that he's never gone back to Paris, uh, Champs-Élysées. And then for a couple of years later, he would continuously do steps, eight seconds, like count one, two, three, four four, five, six, seven, whatever. That's how much I lost by. The crazy thing about that is that's the assumption that he was going to win it automatically. And that's where he actually lost the race because of that belief that he already had it won. Mm. And I think one of the things that Guillemard always told us, and I've won a lot of races this way, the race is never over until the finish line. And the day before the final stage, he came up and tapped me on the shoulder and congratulated me on my second place. And I, that moment I said, you lost, you've lost the tour. Mm. And I'd already done the calculations from my Giro d'Italia time trial, though I took about a minute and 21 seconds and 55 kilometers. Same equipment, no advantages. And I felt even without the bars, I was within seconds. And I didn't know how much the bars made a difference. But in my calculations, I could, I had to make sure I, I know when you're really confident in the time trial, you start the time trial kind of working your way into it. And I knew that's what he was going to do. He thought he had so much time. And I warmed up and I took, I think, 10 seconds. I mean, the race in the first two kilometers. But the fact that he lost, he, it's, he's only devastated because he made the assumption he won. I mean, if he had been realistic, we were so close, you know, I, I don't get that. I, I mean, I don't get that. That's, it, it's almost, I say, arrogant of him to believe that he had already got it handed you know, to him. The race wasn't over. So the, being devastated for getting second place shouldn't have been so devastating because the race is not over till it's mm -hmm. over. So uh, I, I don't understand that. I mean, I can understand the devastation somewhat, but but not really because he's been second in other races. I mean, it's just another, in a way, it's another race. It's a Tour de France, but why did he think if I look back the days, the teams he had, the time I lost, the times he had, he held on a motorcycle, I didn't. Um, I could have easily been uh, two minutes in front of him too. So it just kind of, you know, if I look at the time, team time trial, I think I lost, I don't know how much time on him over Renault, a minute and a half. So if I would have got second, I don't think I would have been devastated um, for second place. It's sad though. I don't, I, I could never understand why that your career could be made or broken based upon one race result. That's what's tragic about it. Yeah. And what did you make then of this year's, or well, last year's just gone Tour de France? Because, you know, that's the second second most exciting edition will take 1989 well, who knows exciting. i mean i'm glad there's <laughs> it's funny because the tour de france before the tour de france this last year i'm kind of going no you know they keep they nobody wants to another time throughout the last stage because um oh how do you do that's what i hear and i'm going every five years it should happen especially today with the tour de france is made for climbers right now 
And at one point, they got to bring in time trials that go to 50, 70 kilometers because it's going to be, it's always going to be directed towards a climber. And I'm going, why not have it to where it's all climber race until the very last stage and you do a 50, 70K hard time trial? That's going to be exciting. <laughs> and I said, that race, that feeling has to come back to it. And that's what happened last year. And it was the day, be- two days before, but it was, God, I loved it. And I, Roglic, I, I interviewed him when I was working at Eurosport, really great guy. He actually was, um, he'd already, he'd been to Wisconsin uh, in ski jumping um, 20, 20 kilometers from La Crosse, Wisconsin, where my wife's coming from. So uh, he's a great background and I think he's a really nice person and I really would love to see him win. But unfortunately, I love the, also the, uh, the suspense of, uh, of Pogaccia, um, a young guy that God, he looks like a kid out of high school, um, takes the race from him. You know, the, the sad part, I think strategically, Roglic, they dominated. I mean, there's some reason there's this kind of model. I think it's this guy, Armstrong deal, where you just lead the whole way and you control everything, which puts mm-hmm. a huge burden on it. And no matter which way you think about it, people understand wind resistance. If you're always be, even doesn't matter if you're behind your teammates, if Pogacar's, Pogaccia, I can't Pogaccia, Pogaccia, is four or five people behind him. The energy savings daily is dramatic being in the in drafting. And you look at day after day after day after day, and um, uh, for Roglic, I mean, he just had a bad day. I don't know if that would have, I think it would have been a different race on a different day. Um, mm. But it was a magical race. I thought also, I thought 2019 with Bernal, I think I would love to see Thibaut Pinot uh, go there. But I do think the racing has been Same. incredibly exciting the last two years. And I, what I love is no longer are they 30-year-old guys winning the Tour de France from out of nowhere. This is what cycling's history was. If you're a great talent, it's there at 18, 19, 20. I think if I raced the Tour in 18, when I was 18 years old, I would have won the Red Zinger Classic. Some really good pro-European riders there. I floated on my bike in, mm. in 79. Um and I, I'm certain I put the same power output I did as when I won the Tour de France. And so your talent is there. It takes some time to adopt to the uh, racing tactics and all that. But there's no reason I say um, Remco, I, I think he might be a Tour de France favorite this, this next year because he's. I think we don't even know his talent. But when I watch his age and the ease that he's winning races, these light, skinny time trials, this guy's going to be – Really, I think, unless, you know, hopefully psychologically last, but he's going to be a, a multi-tour de France winner too. Mm-hmm. What's great about cycling is you've got these young riders all going to compete. You've got the next 10 years all set out right in front of us um, with the future stars. And uh, I get excited about that. And do you, do you find it encouraging that the we're seeing these talented young riders shine so early in their career at the moment in terms of a in terms of a, a cleanness aspect, I guess, because, you know, you, you just referenced there, there was a period where you wouldn't even have a dream of winning a Grand Tour if you were the, the sort of the underside of 30. Yep, or or you had to be on a full program. The, I, I do believe that a smart team's not going to put somebody at 1920 in a program. Mm. It's almost, they have to, they almost, you know, they get the 90s, even the first decade of of, of 21st century there's a it's not just it's not like they force this on riders it basically is a you know it's a 
subtle message. Basically, you know, you know, yeah, you're not racing too well. Do you want another contract? So these guys get seduced in doing it. So there's this young period that unless you jump on board, you know, they're not doing it. And, and some riders who I think performed really well were willing to do anything. That means they took anything. Mm. And I don't believe all riders were doing it. I don't know. I don't know if support could be 100% clean. You never know. But I do mm. think that the only thing, and I know there's, I've heard rumors, oh, Roglic, Pogaccia. I'm not ever going to say anything because I don't know any for anything. I've just heard some of these things. The only thing I do know, and I know, and I know this could be, you know, maybe sound naive, but the French have a higher level of testing. They have different standards. And Thibaut Pinot is a rider that has released his data for since he's a pro, all yeah. his files, his power meter. And I, I said, I don't get why anybody wouldn't do that because it doesn't matter what people know because it's still your body. It, it's not going to matter. I mean, I wouldn't even use a power meter when I'm racing because it, it, you do that for training. Yeah. Your body has to respond for the race. But Thibaut Pinot's has published everything you can go through everything he almost won the tour in 2019 and that tells me everything he would have won that tour if it hadn't have been for the knee injury i mean that's my opinion i do too yep i do too but which is really good and i think that's why you're seeing these younger riders ride up there it's like okay you know the real talent is showing up and i said yeah. I, I can't there's no guarantee of everybody being 100 but i think with the biological passport is really making things different. I do believe there's still a huge risk for e-bikes. I'm telling you, it's right. real. And it's been used in the Peloton and it's won some very big races. And is that is that in reference to the system that you used with the, the Hungarian system, the VVAC system, which is often the system that is quoted or at least footnoted with any of those claims is that that was the one? Oh, I don't know any about that. I haven't heard any of those claims. I don't know. I, I, oh, I didn't know that. I've just heard, you know, there's uh, the director's portief of the UAE just... There's some things that I've heard that disappoint me. I think riders that have a past of doping shouldn't even be in the sport at all. Um, maybe they could bring, get a commission, bring a sponsor, but that's it. But um, I think, I think the, the, the actual motor was invented in 1998 by Stefano Vargas. Mm. He claims it was given sold to an Italian that was used it in some other, <laughs> you could read into whatever you want. Anyways, that was the VVAC system. And, and, and Stefano Vargas, out of, um, he's out of Hungary, is the one that invented that. The VVAX was a, is they took what was fragile, one-off motors, they commercialized that. So, yeah, that's the same system. The problem with the mechanical, I've watched the UCI testing these bikes when I was at Eurosport, and they selectively do it. They test only one area, the bottom bracket. The fact is there were some motors that were done in the wheel that weren't tested. And I tried to propose this to Brian Cookson, but I, when I heard about this, I mean, this is, I, I just, I wouldn't even want to commentate if I knew this. I wouldn't have an interview somebody <laughs> that I thought might be using it. But a very simple solution is um, you can buy these x-ray machines that the U.S. border, most border places have. I found the one that's between a million and million and a half which sounds like a lot but not when it's the integrity of sport that could test 250 semis an hour mm. and you can see a metal clip in somebody's pocket so you wouldn't want the riders to go through but there's simple thing is every bike needs to be sequestered it needs to go through that x-ray machine it needs to be published for one well the uci have that uh, have access to an x-ray machine now x-ray to one one off 
yeah. one off. So you didn't have to select one person. You have 200 riders in the Peloton. You don't need to be the winner to wear that. Your teammates could have it. Hmm. You know, and I, I do. I, I, I'm going to be honest with this. I mean, what I liked the last two years, how many bike changes are you seeing? Not many. No. I mean, for years, you go, God, the Shimano must be making some pretty horrible equipment. And the carbon fiber bikes must have gone down in significant quality from when I was racing. Because I don't remember ever changing my bike unless it was a crash. Mm. And you saw change after change after change after change at one stage. That's incredibly suspicious. I believe I know what's reason. It's, it's, there's, it's, it's has nothing to do with the bike. It has something mm. to do with other stuff that they're using. And so I do think that's really good. I think the Partienne is very concerned and they're doing a really good job. But still, you only need a few people to get away with it. The problem is everybody says, oh, it's not happening. Forget about it. Most riders don't want to talk because it hurts the brand. But mm. it undermines the sport, just the thought that one person gets away with it. And it's so simple to solve. <laughs> it's an x-ray machine. Formula One does it. They take the cars. They break mm. it down. You don't get to touch the car. That's how cycling needs to go. And because if we eliminate that deal and the doping controls continue to advance, I think cycling has an opportunity to be a, one of the cleanest sports in the world. Mm. And, and that's really important. I think as we go on in life, um, you know, everything today is about corruption, not truth facts, not, you know, if, if this uh, alternative, alternative facts. And I think there's a value to being ethical and clean and, and letting people know what they're watching is real. And I think, I still think the uh, motors really is a huge risk for the sport. And mm. it can be solved with a simple million half dollar machine. <laughs> Somebody's got to buy it. I mean, that's interesting that you, uh, on uh, the opinion of the, the motors, because obviously you, your career was burnt towards the end in that you prematurely brought it to an end in, in a way because of uh, sort of more traditional doping, which is, you know, biological doping, which was, a, you know, I think for want of a better word, a, a plague during the 90s and the early 2000s of our sport. So, I mean, it's it's just testament if testament that there'll always be that sort of yeah to to win to win at every cost. Which at the beginning you sort of said that you didn't you never had that win at every cost. You wanted to just compete and be the best. Whereas others, you know, to for you know the, the first name that comes to mind is is Lance Armstrong. It was a win at all costs. It was win at all costs. Mainly, it was uh, probably money driven. Hmm. didn't matter how he got there um but i mean it's you go back to his early career i mean he did some stuff that i mean i watched him hold on to a van and when he was 16 years old so that's a different psychology hmm. i don't know if that's parent upbringing but i do think um it is i think it has a huge difference what family come up, grow up in and come up in and so I, I was really blessed i can't i gotta say this you know i don't look at writers as good or bad people there are some bad people and i say i don't think armstrong's the best guy so but most writers i've ever met are really good people pantani was an incredibly nice person and you get seduced into it but also if i turn pro in the 90s i mean who knows what i've done i want to believe i would never have touched that that's what i'd like to believe the fortunate thing i had incredible talent at 18 i came in and i was third in dauphine my first year um as a pro um I never had a reason to think I needed it. Now, if I had gotten in there thinking I was really good and all of a sudden I'm not even capable of being competitive and people are saying, well, it's because everybody's doing this. 
I would have had a choice to either capitulate or be a back pack filled, which I would not, have, not with my ambition, would have done that or I have to stop. So that's the choice that riders had to do in the nineties. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I empathize with that. And I always felt like it's true. The UCI is it, corruption. When you're when corruption starts at the top, it corrupts everybody. And I believed really believe in, um, I don't think that's an issue now, but you know, I like plea bargaining. I think if a rider was paused the first time he outs who gave it to him, director, sport chief, whatever, it's one more chance. Um, but you need to get rid of all those people who imagine if we did that and with Ferrari, Concone, Cicchini and all those guys, they were out of the sport. Um, it would have made, made a big deal. Ultimately, yeah. if you can't detect it, riders are going to push the limits and it's, it, it, it's, I mean, it's the nature of human nature and competitiveness, but that's why I look at, I think racing is uh, doping control is like radar on a, on the auto route. You know, if there's no radar and there's no cops, you'll go as fast as you can. Uh, I came back to France in 2013, my friend who drives crazy fast. I'm going, what's wrong with you radar? <laughs> so he, he was getting controlled by the radar. And that's what I hope with the doping test is that, it keeps people in check that people who aren't going to do that, they still could be competitive, you yeah. know? And I think in the eighties, there's no doubt writers were, were, were doing stuff. I know cortisone was used. I don't believe at, although somebody said, you know, God, just imagine how good you would have been if you take, <laughs> took cortisone. I don't, I don't believe that. I, I, I did, I did fine. Um, but there was, I don't think there was any drug in the eighties that transformed a writer. EPO did that. Yeah. It, it, it turned it into, high octane and high octane sport everything's oxygen so if you have a 79 vo2 max with epo you can boost that 10 percent. so now you've got an 88 you know 89 uh vo2 max that's the difference between winning the tour and not winning so so biologically looking now as you know you you are in a position where you can probably make a better judgment on this than, than others because you you lived it would you say looking at the peloton now you feel this is as clean as it's been since potentially when you were, you were racing in your pump? Yeah, because I think there's, like Antoine Bayer does a lot of publishing stuff and all that. And I think he, in the eight, 90s, I think a lot of his, or 2000, first decade, even up maybe 2012, 13, he was very accurate in estimating the power output within 2%, 1%. Um, without it, you could time, you could do grades. But I, I do think that riders if to try to judge by the climbing times today um if you think of and it's sad for i think it's i could i wouldn't have a race at this period but you see these riders the, the, there's only one thing i worry about riders that i see eating low calories and losing all this muscle mass physiologically your body should never every time you have a calorie deficit mm. there's some kind of compensation and if you weren't taking drugs you would have if you're Riding and training so much that you're losing that much muscle mass. That means all your testosterone's be worn out, and you're you're in a catabolic um, state, which is eating muscle. That's what riders have done. If you see these riders, are they're starving themselves. So in theory, if I would weigh 68 kilos, now I'm racing at four or five kilos less. My view to max goes up, and so my ability to climb would be faster. I, I you know it's a trade off. You, you can't lose too much ma muscle mass. So I do think it's hard to calculate the difference in 
you need to have their wattage output. You can't measure it by just the climbing. Then you'd have to look at their wattage output based upon their muscle mass density and their fat. Because even regardless, even, even, I mean, I've read some writers, you know, eight or 9%, they look so skinny, but muscle mass weighs more. Even though they could look gaunt, some riders could have higher percentage of body fat. I honestly raced at, I, and I did underwater caliper testing. I never showed up. I tried it at least through my career. I tried to show up at 5% to 7% body fat. And that's, I would, when I started in February, and this is, you know, two careers. I had post tour, <laughs> uh, it's 86 and, and post hunting accident, but I would not vary more than two kilos in the whole season. If I started mm -hmm. at 70, 68 started the tour and maybe I'd drop a kilo after, during the tour. And so when you see these riders today, they're, they look gaunt. I hear that, you know, riders are suffering from anorexia and, and, and that's, a, that's kind of a performance at all costs too, because psychologically there's no reason for anybody to diet when you're racing. Your body is so balanced and you have a deficit of 100 calories. The body will make up and consume it. And, uh, and that's why people gain weight. You don't have to eat more than 100 calories a day. Uh, you can gain a lot of weight over a period. So a cyclist to lose all that muscle mass, um, you know, over years is fine, but I think it's unhealthy. Uh, but at the same time, I'm saying, I think it's hard to, especially in climbing, to compare the times, even when I was racing, um, than in today. Um, yeah. But you could look at wattage output, and then you still, I said, have to calculate that to their weight. Do you think it would be a good idea then to be more, it, because as a sport, we always brush, we have, we're tarnished with a brush, and unfortunately, and we, we will be for a long time because of what happened in the 1990s and the 2000s. And so do you think as a, as a byway of a transparency is, if you got to begin in the Tour de France and independently published was the weights of each rider and you had live access to wattage, which we, at the moment we, we do, we have partial access because of people like Velon to, to watts during the race and watts per kilo. Do you think that would go a long way in helping with transparency? No, because it's a long, to lose all that muscle mass is over a long period. So once they get down there, they'll have to maintain that the high calorie output. That means you have to train a lot or have to starve yourself because your body, everything you do in training is to be more efficient. I mean, you know, your body is so, so delicate, so refined. That's why heart get really big for endurance athletes because it's it's trying to compensate for the endurance. They want it, it wants to do the least amount of work possible. The heart gets bigger, it punts more blood. And so when you when you lose all that weight and muscle mass, your body is going to fight that for a long time. But now it could become it can become the new standard, your new baseline. But um, if if you think about it, it's kind of the problem with if you wanted to cheat EPO, you just and you could just do VO2 max tests um, without the blood test. You you can artificially have a high VO2 max if you're always using EPO. So if you already reduce your ma muscle mass and your weight um, already a year, year or two before, I don't think there's something like, I don't think that can be compensated. The, I, I say that to me, it doesn't make sense when I hear people starving. Sometimes I think it's starving right, right before the tour, trying to lose five kilos. I'm going, that is not right. Mm. And if you do that, your, your testosterone would lower. You'd be basically chronically overtrained. The only way to recover from that is to take testosterone again to get back to where you're balanced. So that kind of concerns me when I see that. Now, I don't think, I think riders now are under tremendous pressure to, it's almost like they're gymnasts now. 
to maintain this super low body fat. I think once they establish it, I'm not saying that cortisone testosterone patterns happening once they establish that, but then they have to fight like hell to diet to keep that off. Mm. And that is not healthy. But I don't think that's something we could change. Um, because fact is, weight to power is really important. And, um, you know, I do think one thing I wish they would do, and I it, it would probably change the sport even more dramatically, because it's the climbers already have um, an advantage. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think when you're bigger, taller rider, no matter what you watch a, um, a taller rider, Dutch rider, um, there is much more drag on those guys aerodynamically. Yeah. They are constantly working harder. Then they get to a climb in theory, if their VO2 max is high relative to their weight, they should climb as, as well as the smaller riders. What's funny is I really believe the small climbers actually are at a huge disadvantage because we've made this artificial 6.8 kilos for a bike frame, mm. 6.8. 68 kilos, that's 10% of your body fat. Now, if you're 53 or 54 kilos, I don't know the calculation, 14%. So you're literally racing on a massive penalty. So there should be at least a weight limit based upon your body weight, because I think, um, I think a smaller rider like Brunel or, or I don't know who was like a Quintana, Quintana for instance. Yeah. He would, he would have a, a minute or two man advantage on uh, like a Chris Froome. He would, he would probably be drop, dropping Chris Froome because Chris has got, I think he's 68 kilos. You mm. got a guy who's, you know, for every kilo, uh, it's about a minute and a half at the top of a climb like Lopter was. So the, I'd like to see that thing limited because really the equipment uh, should be based upon the safety test. Um, and I think today you can make a lighter bike that's safer, but if they, at least, at least they do it, they should categorize weight limits based upon weight categories, because mm -hmm. it's not fair for a, a smaller rider race, race on a heavier bike. Um, first percentage body fat. There's, there's some, there's some really, there's some rules out there that just make no sense that they haven't rethought them. And I'm going, that's one of them. I'm going, this was done 20 years ago. I mean, come on. <laughs> and I, I kind of believe what I think I, I heard that it was because there were some really lightweight bikes come from China. And I think that was the French manufacturer said, yeah. you know, those aren't safe and let's make a minimum weight category. Instead of that, they should have made some uh, actual testing standards that the bikes had to go through mm. isotype standards. Speak, speaking of equipment, and as you were earlier speaking of DSs and and just the sport at the moment and the teams today, if you could go back and do it all again, but you had to do it tomorrow, who would you want to sign with and what races would you be targeting? And also, what bike would you want to ride other than a Le Monde? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I, you know, actually, I, 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 would, I would go right back to Guimard because I don't know, I'm... And there's some really good directors. I don't know enough well enough, but I, I'm kind of going, a lot of directors have been there forever. I know the riders. So I'm kind of going, I, I kind of go, I don't know if I was very spoiled. So I don't think there's a team that I'd be happy with right now with the current directors. I'm, I just don't know some of them. So, and I, there's some that have just reputations. I just wouldn't want to be part of. So let's just get, I'd go back to Guimard. Um, I don't know how to do that. Uh, other way, any other ways, but um what bike would I choose? I, I, I actually believe I, my, I'm not going to make an aero bike or a lightweight bike. I'm going to make one bike that's lightweight and aero. And mm -hmm. so, and I, I truly believe that aerodynamics is really important, but somewhat overblown when you're Peloton racing. If, you know, if 1% of your 
efforts are solo on the front. Um, let's just say if I had a choice of lightweight or aero, I would go lightweight for most of the road racing mm. because you've got continuous elevation changes. The difference in output inside a Peloton is so dramatic being in the wind or not. And the fact is most 90% of your time spent inside the Peloton. So weight over the whole stage is going to make up way more than, than the aerodynamics of a, of a lightweight climbing bike. So that's what I would, I would choose. And there's some new bikes specialized as a very lightweight one, but I would probably go over that. I do believe that, you know, I'm doing some testing on wheelbase lengths and it's kind of interesting because I made a steel bike with a very short chain stay length. And, um, and that's just been kind of like the trend. And for some people, for some reason, people believe a really short wheelbase somehow helps accelerate. The truth is, yeah, maybe if you're Chris Hoy on the track, <laughs> you know, you're accelerating for ground, you're already going on a sprint. One centimeter, two centimeters difference in length of chain stay is not going to make a difference, but it will make a difference in the way the ride feels and it descends better. So I would probably design a bike with longer chain, chain stays, um, mainly for stability on, I, I went on my 86 team Lamont that I made steel bike, man, that thing rode really perfect. And I've always believed there's no reason all these marketing things, racing bike, endurance bike, a, comf- a racing bike should be a comfortable bike. And the only difference is a racing bike has a lower head tube so they can get more aerodynamic, but I think a great bike should ride well. It doesn't matter if you're old timer, a young racer, or top pro. And I, I said, I, I mean, the road bike we're coming out, is going to be both aero and lightweight. And, uh, and I, I, it uh, helps us kind of lower the skews and models. Uh, and so, uh, but I would always choose lightweight over aero on a road race. And just because your energy is spent, there's a lot of climbing on a, on a stage. And where would you, where would you want to take that bike back to, to win? What did you, what did you miss out on in your career? Which as we said, you know, is illustrious already, but anything that you wished oh, if i could just oh gosh if you had a modern day carbon fiber bike today yeah that'd be a big advantage because well i said i had a 15.5 pound almost seven kilo uh but a, a carbon bike would have made a big difference i think if i could take some equipment back a little bit back to Perry bay in the first early stages of like riding Perry bay you know it was always this debate how much tire would we go we did go a little bit bigger tire probably to 22 millimeters and did lower the pressure, but um, I, I actually think I would race at Perry Bay with with shocks. I'd do it like we did in '92, '93, mm. because and wider tires because the energy savings, the you know, uh, the, the fatigue. I think if you can have a lightweight suspension system without kind of and um, impeding your your pedaling, I would do that. But I, I think. I said I want to test my 89 aero bike because I don't think <laughs> I think that was probably aerodynamic. I wish I had a carbon fiber one because that thing weighed that weighed at least 25 pounds, 26 pounds. Mm. So that would be too heavy. But um, I don't know. I think one of the biggest biggest things I wish I would have had in the 80s, after I got shot in a hunting action, I think was the power meter, and I started using that. Uh, like you said, I had somebody come to me with it, yeah. and it was a game changer, and not necessarily it's great to, to measure your improvement. I have a way of using power, a few tests that I can to make sure I'm recovered. That's the most important thing to get out of power meter. Uh, if that's all you get, it doesn't matter how you train, you go out there, go as hard as you want because your body will put that workout. I like it when I was starting off getting uh, in, in, in shape where I could do fixed 
efforts and a certain watt and watch my heart rate is that if I'm doing 300 watts at 180 and next time I come back at 300 watts and I'm 165, I know I need to increase the output so I reach that target heart rate. But if I could come back and have that prior to me getting shot, knowing where I stood pre-hunting accident, where I came out afterwards, but more importantly, I would have used those, that data to know when I could get back into a race. Right. I think the most difficult thing for me was getting shot, losing all this muscle mass, being forced really to race again because nobody believed I'd ever come back. It was incredibly stressful for my body to go from really not ready to race to the shock of racing, yeah, mm -hmm. which creates this pattern of overtraining, chronic overtraining. So that would have made a huge impact um, had I had that early on. And I still think that's the most valuable tool in cycling today is and people just look down, it's like, okay, they record their values and all that. Getting that out is learning how to train smarter, increase your power output, not just recording your power output. And that's the, that's the secret. And believe it or not, I mean, I talked to Uli from um, SRM, and I believe this to this day that um, most, most even the best cyclists are capable of doing three real hard workouts a week, maybe four, and the rest is, needs to be recovery. And you make much more progress with the three to four days of high intense, really where you put out versus when I hear anybody training day seven, seven days a week or one day off. And I said, you're not training properly because <laughs> you should be tired enough after a day to rest, uh, to make, make that next level jump. And I think that's the value of the power meter. It, it, it can help you know when those days are, you're right to go hard when the days you should be taking a rest day. Mm -hmm. And so that was probably for me, I wish I could go back and have that tool early on do you think they should be uh be permissible in races though because obviously it's an incredible training tool but we often hear people lamenting how by the numbers cycling is and you just got someone gazing down at their stem because they're looking at their srm power like their head unit and just hitting that wattage on that climb because they know they can sustain it and lo and behold they win the stage is that yeah i don't believe that we, that i think maybe they do but i don't i think even if we didn't have power meters, you actually, you, you know that intensity already intuitively without yeah. it. I actually, the time I realized I don't want to see any data was in 89. I was the Giro d'Italia lost 10 minutes in first day, 17 in trade team Laborato, but I started feeling better after this rain and my infamous iron shots that um, were really iron shots. John Wilcox and watch the journalist, but I started feeling better and I had an uphill time trail just outside of Milan and I believe, you know, I used a heart rate monitor since 83, and it was all target heart rate. And that sounds great, but um, I believe my threshold, sustainable threshold was at 180, 179, my max is 190. So I get on this time trail and I keep going to 183, 81, 84, 185, and I keep backing off to keep that intensity. Mm. And I get done with the time trial. I didn't even push myself. Now, what I didn't know at that time is called heart rate drift when you have heat, high heat your body output's going to be the same. Your lactate's going to be the same, but your heart rate's going to go to compensate for the heat. So you're trying to sweat. And so I, I never used a heart rate monitor again. And I think that with power, I think maybe in early season, you could use it to not push yourself too much. But once you get in the tour, it might even be, a, it might be even a handicap because you can never train as hard as you race. I could tell you that. And people can go way beyond what they think they could do in training. 
And by the time you hit the tour, honestly, they talk about lactate threshold. I'm even, I don't, I don't even believe in the whole fat burning BS about certain diets. I, I believe fat burning is based upon the threshold of your VO2 max in your lactate, your system and oxygen. When you are, when that's really high, um, you're, when you're riding slow, you're going to be at a different your met metabolic pathway. You're going to use more fats anyways. But, um, but when you're, when you're at that level, they may show studies after studies, a pro ability to even produce, and you're so efficient metabolizing lactate. There's like two millimoles is that they, most pro cyclists want to get past two millimoles. Somebody to actually have a decrease in performance would be more than that four millimoles of lact lactate, which most riders don't produce. So if they have a bad day, it's because they're fatigued or they just reach their, their aerobic lab. So I think at times using power, it would be, you might be going, Oh God. Now, if you really got to know your body, you recorded every single race, maybe you could really dial that in, but I still don't think that would change your performance. And that's why I said, even if people publish their stuff, it won't change the race because you still have to do it. Mm. You know, I'm not going to be looking over at the other riders going, Oh, you're at, you're at this power because wouldn't his power is irrelevant to my power output. It's, it has no, no relevance. It's, it's your own power and you're going to feel good or not feel good. And you're going to get dropped or you're going to feel good that day. I think, I think when you're in the tour, the people who win are the ones that's why high VO2 max makes a difference because you're always working a little bit less hard than the other person. And over it, most, most riders will deteriorate slightly in their performance. But if you're always pushing yourself, you know, lower VO2 max, you get more tired. And I think that's why one of my strengths with us racing, I had friends that would lose five kilos in the tour. Honestly, I, I would lose maybe a kilo if that, and that's a major advantage when you get in the, in the stage race like that. I'm to be able to not to go into any kind of calorie deficit is really important. And so, yeah, anyways, I think, uh, I think technology, I love for it, ride with the power meter. I love it. I love it. But it's not, um, I think it'd be way overboard to watch everything you do in a race to uh, um, look at everything you do on based upon your power output. So this is something that this sort of almost links into and I just want to ask you to tell me because I've heard I've heard it told secondhand. Um, speaking of power output, you're turning yourself inside out, you know your body, you know, you can remember the hardest day on a bike was the hardest day for you on a bike the day of the infamous bad peach and can you explain that to me is that oh, no, a, that was is that a best, genuine that was, is that a real story yeah actually my worst day of my bike was 92 sister air stage where i was right. literally i go how could i've been one near the tour 1990 and i'm 10 15 20 minutes behind kupuchi i mean it was uh devastating me um that, those are always the worst when you're winning races not not bad but no 86 um we had just done the time trial not and um, I still know how I got it <laughs> because it was very quick. Um, although I heard a story about, it's so interesting. I heard a story about Freddie Martin's Eddie Merck's next trainer for Eddie Merck's and supposedly that ex trainer put something in Freddie Martin's drink and he literally had diarrhea. He had to quit the race. So <laughs> that's what somebody told me. Well, you never know. Somebody could have done that. I don't know if that's the case. Uh, I think it was probably some bad water or peach. But whatever it was, 50, 60 Ks ago, I got a, a, the feed, whatever I had, man, 10 Ks later, I didn't know what I had, but I had to go to the bathroom really bad. And then I wasn't, wasn't 
number one in America, number one's pee, number two is the other one. <laughs> and I, we were going at 50 Ks an hour and I, I asked somebody for a hat and they gave it to me and I tried to get it, had my hand between, you know, I had bibs on and I had my hand just about to get there and it just came loose. And it literally gushed out of me and my Lycra shorts expanded by three centimeters. <laughs> And it just came down my legs. And uh, oh, that was painful, though. It was, I was cramping. I had, um, but it was 50 Ks to go. Uh, but we you know when you have, you feel sick and you don't want to talk to anybody, you just want to sit on the toilet. That's, that's how I, f- <laughs> I felt. Um, but I, 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 the funny part, story is that we had a, you know, at, at least at Renault, we had a big real c- commercial bus. Renault, La Claire, they rented a little camper. I mean, literally, it was like the smallest little, caravan you could get and uh i went in there to looking for the toilet and um they had pulled the toilet out and loaded it with postcards of all the cyclists and but where that toilet was located was all the postcards for he know <laughs> i desperately created toilet seat there of his postcards and sat on that for about an hour and a half so <laughs> that was a real story that was yeah that was uh i actually had about of that it, you know, I always think maybe it's because I'm coming from there and maybe it was the water I, I drank, but I had that tour lavenir where Finyon ever had to uh, wait for me. So that was my second time, not the first. <laughs> but that happens. That was, uh, yeah, that was a good story though. It was more that it, it, nobody, the funny part was nobody get around me because it was literally coming off my legs into the wheels and they, they would, it was a huge gap. So I wasn't get the, the protection that I needed. Uh, racing to the finish i'm sort of speechless there's just so much to unpack there and i'm kind of gutted we couldn't have run that just for uh, a full six hours because i think greg was up for that and he was on form he was he was definitely on form he was on he was on form um and i've known him through you know i've not known him but by proxy have um got to know the legend of greg lamond uh by reading articles and seeing um, interviews and stuff uh, so you know we both knew he was quite candid but yeah some big revelations there I mean what did you make of particularly the one you know the major one that's going to stick out to listeners is going to be the motor yeah, doping yeah. and this idea that not only that uh, it has happened that it still might be happening and it may have been historically happening as far back as the early 90s because I've always looked at motor doping and just thought it is too incredibly stupid it's too much like wacky races <laughs> For it to be real, I mean, what's next? Like riders throwing out oil slicks and banana skins behind them. Um, but then again, we do know that way back when riders would stick pumps in each other's spokes and have bandits waiting on courses to jump their uh, competitors and kick them into the bushes. So everything is unfair in love and cycling. So yeah, like Le Mans, Le Mans when he brought up the anecdote about the the driving, where it's like if you have radar and you know where the speed checks are going to be you're going to push it and go above the speed limit because you know you're not going to be caught. And as well, when Lamont talks about that win at all cost aspect of cycling, which is completely there with some people, if you know that you can get away with something, you, you will. People cheat in every walk of life if they know that they can get away with it and get, gain an advantage. It's worth saying that there's only ever been one proven use of a motor in professional cycling, and that was with... Uh, Belgium junior cyclocross racer Femke van den Dreisch at the 2016 uh, UCI Cyclocross World Championships 
it was discovered that she had used a, a motor um, and she was handed a ban of, I think it was six years in the end. Um, so it's worth noting that they've actually only ever had one proven occurrence. But I think logic would dictate that the only time a motor will have been used in the sport was by a, what, 17, 18-year-old Belgian girl doesn't stack up <laughs> like like when you know and there's a lot of rumors there's a lot of stuff that's gone around in the last sort of five years about who may have used the motors where it might have been used and we're not going to speculate on that mainly because we don't want to be in lots of legal trouble which is one of the big things is that and I think which which listeners and readers especially may not understand and because there's a lot of people on social media that just sort of say why don't why don't you be more open about this and say what you've heard and, and the rumours that you've heard is, well, legally we can't talk about a lot of things. And if someone takes it upon themselves to say it, especially as an individual, they can, but they will probably face the same kind of legal action as someone like you or I would, James, working for a, a brand like Cyprus. But I'm kind of in Le Mans camp that I think it's probably been used <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's just let's just rewind there. So we shouldn't talk about we shouldn't talk in conjecture or or hypothesis or hyperbole, especially because our employers, our overlords, <laughs> may well get sued. But what you'll say is you basically agree with Le Mans that everyone is motor doping. I don't know, not everyone's motor doping, but you know, logic would dictate that one, the technology's there. Two, we know that it has happened with Van den Dreisch, and three, we know that checks on stuff like motors weren't good enough and didn't exist when the technology was there this is true but the thing so the thing of it is right um i have so i've used the vivax motor so the one that lamont was talking about is not the vivax motor i forget the name of it but he's talking about a much earlier version but the vivax motor is a similar so the one that he's talking about he he sort of rode and, and saw in the early 90s. yeah the stefano Vargas system isn't it yeah so the Vivax one is very similar. So it goes. What so what it does? It's a um, a worm gear that meshes with effectively a spindle of the bottom bracket. So it's turning your cranks, um, and it's mounted in the seat tube. So it's mounted essentially vertically, um, and it's pinned to the inside of the seat tube. And so it has to be pinned very tightly as well, um, like very tightly, but in, in an incredibly robust way because it's developing an enormous amount of torque. So these things can actually rip frames apart in the way that they're anchored uh, because you know if you think about what it's like to press down on the pedals when you're going up a 15% climb somewhere along the way that stress has to be balanced uh, otherwise the thing that's trying to balance it will move that's where flex, flex comes from and that's what the twisting action within the seat, seat tube could be so it could rip a frame apart for one and frames are already very light so they have to be seriously re overbuilt in this area for that not to happen um, number two the batteries don't last that long, and the Vivax machine's batteries go in a water bottle. Again, it's very heavy. The water bottle looks like a water bottle, but it does have wires coming out of the frame at some point, um, and so therefore looks very obvious. And again, it's a huge weight penalty. Um, but the weight penalty is offset. So I've also raced a, a regular road bike. Our erstwhile colleague, Peter Stewart, uh, incredibly good cyclist, we did a kind of test, and he's absolutely way fitter than me. Um, and lighter than me and a better climber than me and he had a better bike than me I had this real 
pig iron or whatever, the pig carbon. So yeah, he I remember this. But he was on a Bianca Ultra XR4 rim brake, which is like seven kilos max. Yeah, it was like it had tubs. Yeah, Campagnola wheels. So it was like fully tricked out. What you would be riding in a professional peloton. Yeah, and you had like a stock carbon round tube frame, and it weighed like nine, ten. Maybe even more. I weighed it weighed not probably north of north of ten kilos. Uh, didn't have any fancy parts. Certainly didn't have aero wheels. And we raced up Swains Lane, which um, if you're not familiar with Swains, it's um, you know in London we have to take what we what we're given. So it's just a regular rubbish road <laughs> in the middle of town that can be quite busy. Uh, that's just incredibly steep. And they have the um, Rafa used to sponsor a hill climb there for for many years. Anyway, so it's very steep. So we raced up that, um, and yeah, I was fine. I was fine, and I could beat him. And so that's the power of that motor. But the main takeaway is how you fit them to a variety of different bikes because the frame would have to be very specifically re like specifically built and shaped to fit it. It's not a universal fit. Number two, the noise. You can hear a very audible noise. And I know, you know, anyone that's ridden in a any kind of um, mass participation event, you know that lovely sound you get when you're whooshing along with yeah. 20 other riders there is a lot of noise in that scenario and i don't think you'd hear a motor but when you need a motor is when it's just you versus contador on a climb and it's almost deathly silent you're only traveling at like 18 kilometers yeah. an hour and that's when you suddenly hear it go <laughs> and, and at the same time magically off you go um so i just don't know how how that could fly so unless everyone had motors <laughs> and everyone goes well okay that's the motor engaging but then it's just like everyone mm. whereas at least i can kind of fathom with epo it's the silent assassin everyone can kind of do it because you're never actually properly doing it in somebody's face because you're doing it in your hotel rooms with your doctors whatever and then when you're out on race day you just assume everyone's doing it it's not motors are just such an incongruous aspect of a, of a bicycle yeah. someone would detect them that's my main right. point just to finally get to that that's <laughs> my main point someone would detect them you don't need x-ray specs you just need ears and you need eyes and I don't know. But then there is that clip of um, of Cancellara, you know, it's out there. I'm not, it's not liable to say where people have pointed at his bike when he's crashed um, in the latter, um, one of the latter classics that he didn't win. And it appears that his cranks are still magically moving. Yeah. Even so that would be an in indicative of the Vivac system, but only again, only really the Vivac system going wrong because it's a pedal support mm. system. So it kicks in when you pedal. It doesn't turn the pedals on its own, although there is a way of doing that, and it is quite fun because it does look, you know, you stick your feet on the top tube and press the button and your pedals keep whizzing around. That's quite <laughs> jokes. <laughs> so anyway, I don't know. I could just wax. It just, I don't know. I just find it mind-blowing. Like, do you really, do you honestly think, Joseph Robinson, that that is an aspect of professional cycling and races have been won with hidden motors? It just, it's ridiculous. Mate, this, is, this is a sport where people tied chicken wire to cars and then the other end on a piece of cork put it in their mouth and got towed along by cars yeah and that when did when did when I, yeah nothing surprised when, when did that happen <laughs> when did that happen that happened in like 19 1903 and who was doing that that was the working classes trying to get pulled by their bootstraps out of having a life of hard labor on farms tempted by Henri de Grange and a stipend of 15 francs a day so they could feed themselves whereas now these guys are mate there was there was there was pro cyclists in the, the 90s and the early noughties who basically threw their wives and children under the buses and like 
saw family members do jail time so that they didn't get caught doping. Like, it's not... I'm not surprised by anything. I really hope it's not the case. And I certainly don't think it's so much the case now because I think the UCI are wiser to it and therefore the, the risk is much too high for anyone to risk that right now. So I do believe with Le Mans that it's not so much a threat anymore. But honestly... Nothing surprises me as an individual when it comes to this sport, you know. If it suddenly came out that someone in the professional peloton was actually an alien. I was going to say, what are you going to tell me next? <laughs> you've seen... Of course, of course, cycling. You've it seen David Leparchin and Bernard Hino go off with Bill Clinton and turn into lizards. But, mate, there we are. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I stand, I stand to be corrected. And like you say, it is cycling. And cycling, I've got to say, is... It... As much as I would hate it, hate if this is the case, it does fascinate me, and I am always drawn to cycling beyond any other sport that it has this incredible side order of daring do that very quickly moves into like complete cheating <laughs> and insanity. insanity. Uh, so I don't know. At least it's something interesting to talk about. You don't get that in football, do you? Could you have motors in football boots? What would they do? Yeah, put, what what we need to be wary of is people that get motors put into their knees. Yeah, knee motors. Bionic motors. One. And I suppose all sports have always tampered with their equipment. You know, people used to still do pick the seams on cricket balls. There has been stuff about weight. Sandpaper. Yeah, about weighted footballs. Uh, footballs, you know, the whole deflate gate in NBA where all underinflated balls were used. Uh, the way that they mow pitches to, you know, I'm sure they even put like a penny under a snooker leg every now and again to uh, make the table fall into the bottom left hand corner. <laughs> Look. We could talk about this all day, but I'm going to cut it there. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our Greg LeMond special, two-parter. Uh, we certainly enjoyed chatting to Greg. Um, but in the meantime, if you did like the episode, make sure to share it with your cycling friends, like, leave a comment, uh, and post on your own channels too. Um, but for now, James, I will talk to you again in a little while. Wonderful. And, uh, yeah, if you could send... Any messages from lawyers uh, down to Joseph in Kent uh, and not to our headquarters in London, that would be appreciated. I think he'll have to deal with that. <laughs>